Uh, David Leal is going to introduce our speaker today. Uh, the main thing that I want to do is to welcome back Dr. Wukash. <laughs> and we understand that Walter Wetzels is now doing okay as well. David. All right. Thank you. Well, as the grandson of a coal miner, I am very happy to introduce the daughter of a coal miner, Rhonda Evans, although from a different part of the world, originally from Ohio. Uh, Rhonda is the director of the Edward A. Clark Center for Australia and New Zealand Studies, also a senior lecturer in the Department of Government. She was previously a tenured professor in the Department of Political Science at East Carolina University. Before receiving her PhD from UT's <coughs> Department of Government, she received a law degree from Pittsburgh and was a practicing attorney for two years in Ohio. Her most recent publication is a book with Oxford University Press, co-authored with Terry Givens and called Legislating Equality, The Politics of Anti-Discrimination Policy in Europe. And she's also published articles in journals such as the Journal of Common Market Studies, the Australian Journal of Political Science, and the Journal of Democracy. Her most recent projects are two book manuscripts, one of which is the Australian Human Rights Commission, Bringing International Human Rights Home, and also an edited volume with Jock Collins, Contemporary Australian and U.S. Immigration Unsettling Transformations. Her classes include Introduction to Australia, Australian Society and Politics, and Human Rights and World Politics, and she is also the recipient of several teaching awards. So without further ado, Rhonda, thank you for speaking here. Well, thank you, David, for that lovely introduction. Thanks to Roger for the invitation to be here today. And thank you all for giving up some of your Friday afternoon for this talk. I'm grateful for this opportunity because this is a project that's actually been sitting on my desk for a little while. So I was able to pick it up and dust it off and uh, see what you think of these ideas that I've been chewing on with regard to Australia's non-acceptance of refugees. And I've got a PowerPoint set of slides here. so. This quote is from uh, currently Prime Minister Scott Morrison. At least he was the last time I checked the news feed. <laughs> He's been Prime Minister since uh, August 24th. He made these comments when he was Treasurer, but previ previous to that role, he had been Minister uh, for Immigration and Border Control. And so he made these comments on a radio program operated by shock jock Ray Hadley in Sydney. Uh, essentially saying that Australia um, is the envy of, of the world and other countries would love to have Australia's refugee policies. So the suite of policies to which he's referring are known internationally as the Australian model. And I'll just elaborate the three key elements and then I'll unpack those a little bit more as we go along. So the Australian model consists of boat turnbacks. Sorry, I don't, I need... Um, better glasses here. I can't see you when these are up and I can't read without them on, uh, but I'll do my best. Uh, boat turnbacks, offshore detention and processing on islands such as Nauru and on Papua New Guinea's Manus Island, although that has since uh, come to an end, but there are still 
asylum seekers on Manus Island. They're just no longer detained in an Australian detention center. So boat turnbacks, offshore detention and processing, and a refusal to ever settle in Australia. Anyone who has tried to reach Australia by boat, even if that person has been deemed to be a refugee, uh, according to Australia's own determination process and standards. So stopping the boats became a mantra of Australian politics in the last dozen years or so. As you might imagine, this model has its critics. They contend that the policy is neither stable nor a, via nor a viable long-term policy, and that it's bound to encounter some legitimacy crisis at some point in time. Um, and so just to, to go through the, the boat turnbacks, uh, they use the military to actually turn back the refugee boats that are encountered on the water. Um, in some instances, they actually put people into non-submersible uh, crafts like this in order to get them back to safety. There have been a lot of issues as to whether Australia has been into Indonesian waters or not, and on some occasions they have been. This is just to give you an orientation geographically of where these um, detention centers are located with respect to Australia. Essentially, Australia legislated to remove the continent from its own migration zone. So you can't actually claim asylum in Australia and you are processed offshore in these detention centers. Prior to this, detention centers were generally located in very remote places in Western Australia or in South Australia, although there were some around Sydney and Melbourne. But the main ones were in more remote areas. And then this last, um, and this is an actual newspaper that was published as part of the Rudd Labor government's effort to indicate that you will not be allowed to settle in Australia. And so these are really the three main components of the Australian model. We could also talk about its approach to temporary protection visas, which is quite um, stingy and comes under criticism. But when we talk about the Australian model, we're generally talking about these main policy areas. So as you might imagine, the policy has its critics. And uh, Human Rights Watch is probably foremost among that. And so it's been said that the model is fiscally irresponsible, morally bankrupt, and increasingly politically unsustainable. So it's certainly expensive. And I've just got a, a few slides here with some information that shows you the cost of processing asylum seekers offshore relative to processing people onshore in Australia. And this is one of many reports that have been done, not simply by advocates and their organizations, but also by entities within the Australian government. It's quite an expensive process. Um, you can also note that the process has been quite distorted. So there have been several reports that have talked about problems in the contract tendering process. These detention centers are operated by private companies. Often the tendering process isn't that transparent and there are potential conflicts of interest. And the Australian National Audit Office in January of 2017 released a report that documented that fact. Commentators such as Michelle Grattan, a renowned journalist in Australia, have commented a lot on all of the lack of transparency in this entire policy area. Um, especially the boat turnbacks where the government's able to invoke the idea of military operations on the sea as a way of trying to prevent sharing information about what's happening out there. Now, there are also uh, a lot of reports that document 
the human suffering that happens in the offshore detention centers. And so I've just got a few copies here of reports that have been published, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Australia's own Human Rights Commission held an inquiry. Human Rights Watch has done work, Amnesty International. The Guardian actually obtained a lot of files that were secret files, classified files, and released those that showed the, the problems with the conditions on these detention centers. And then recently there was a documentary called Chasing Asylum. The director said it was her goal with this film to actually try to shame Australia into changing its policies. And of course, shaming countries is an important tactic for human rights advocates. Now, these miserable conditions have actually driven some detainees to end their indefinite detentions in these centers through suicide, as did a 23-year-old Iranian man who self-immolated in 2016. And more recently, in June of this year, another young Iranian man uh, took his own life on Nauru. He had been there since 2013 and had repeatedly asked for assistance with his deteriorating mental health conditions. Right now, 189 people still languish in the processing center on Nauru. So these are just facts, that it's a very expensive policy, that there are a lot of distortions in how the policy is implemented and funded, and that there's a lot of human suffering that's inflicted. And so we might agree with Human Rights Watch that the policy would seem to be politically unsustainable or headed for a legitimacy crisis, as other critics have, have argued. Um, however, rather than arguing, rather than concluding that it's politically sustainable, I reached the contrary conclusion that it's actually politically self-sustaining. And I do that for three main reasons that I'll go through here today. One uh, is that the policy actually, actually serves the political interests of Australia's major parties. There's a certain political logic in place that just seems to make it very difficult to get them to change course. And if they don't change course, the policy will remain. Second, as I'll show you here today, Australia effectively conducted a real-world policy experiment with the Australian model. And if you look at the numbers, there's a case to be made that it worked. Um, it's hard to argue against that, against that case. You can, but you've got to get people to listen to that argument, and that's hard to do. And last, I think that the politics of this situation makes it largely impervious to a lot of the tactics that human rights advocates have been using and try to use to prod the government to make changes. And so I reached the conclusion that this policy is going to be around for quite some time. It does not mean I endorse it, but I just think it's politically self-sustaining. So I want to talk a little bit about the political origins and development of the model for those of you who aren't that familiar with it. I'll then talk about the real world policy experience, the political dynamics that sustain it, and the reasons why I see advocacy efforts as largely futile. So we all know that the problem in the world is we have about 65 million displaced people who want to go somewhere else. And the countries are the most, that are the most appealing destinations don't necessarily want these people. You know, what, what are we to do in this situation? Australia is a fairly lucky country geographically because it's able to assert real control over its borders by virtue of where it's located and that it's surrounded by open ocean. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Australia encountered its first uh, experience with people arriving by boat. They were fleeing the conflicts of Southeast Asia. 
I think roughly 2,000 people arrived. It was perceived as a crisis. The then coalition government, the coalition as a conservative government of Malcolm Fraser, responded by largely accepting these people, working to resettle them, and trying to work for a regional solution um, to deal with the, the, the flows that were coming to Australia. It was quite controversial. People were worried about how it would go. And it's generally regarded as a real policy success for Australia. And indeed, Malcolm Fraser, until his death, was a vociferous critic of the governments and their policies towards asylum seekers in the last couple of decades. So what happens is that you get a lull in the boats from the early 1980s until the early 1990s, at which point you have a labor government in power. The labor government decides to take a hard line and institutes a policy of mandatory detention, whereby people who arrive by boat and claim asylum are detained until their asylum application is either accepted or if rejected, they can be deported. That was a real problem for people who could not be deported because they were essentially stateless persons. In 1996, Australians went to the polls, and that's an important election because Labor lost power to the conservative coalition led by John Howard. It's also important because Pauline Hanson, um, who's a, a populist politician in Australia, she was a fish and chip shop owner in Queensland, and she was able to win a seat uh, in Parliament. And she pursued rhetoric that the major parties did not engage in, largely focusing on indigenous people and race. She said what a lot of people were thinking, but what a lot of people weren't saying, and gave voice to that. And I don't think in today's world we have to imagine too much what that sounds like. That was important because she started to draw, she posed a threat to the major parties, to the coalition parties, mainly at that time, um, today equally arguably to labor and the coalition parties, drawing their supporters uh, for her, being a voice against globalization and a voice against immigration and indigenous people. In 2001, John Howard was up for, re his government was up for re-election. He was lagging in the polls and uh, a Norwegian freighter, the MV Tampa, rescues about 430 some asylum seekers uh, from a sinking boat, wants to deposit them in Australia, as would have been standard practice. And Howard uses that as an opportunity to say, we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come. And he's able to win the 2001 election, throwing labor a real curveball as to how to respond on this issue. Howard essentially defined the issue in terms of one of border control and border protection. The boats uh, eventually came to pretty much a stop, and this allowed labor when it came to power. John Howard is the um, second longest serving prime minister in Australia. No prime minister has served a full term uh, since he lost power in 2007, so he was there from 96 to 2007. And the issue had sort of faded from Australian politics and created some space for labor to say, look, we'll pursue a less draconian policy. And so labor rolls back what had been the policy of the Howard government, which was offshore processing, some boat turnbacks, and they begin to uh, pretty quickly see boats start arriving again in quite large numbers 
to Australia carrying asylum seekers. And the coalition parties make the case that this is exactly what we said would follow if you lifted the policies that we'd had in place and that had really kept the boats in check. This throws labor into a real quandary because the boats uh, keep increasing in number and there are a number of stopgap measures trying to, to put an end to this. The coalition as an opposition is not willing to help with that because they're getting political mileage out of labor floundering with this issue. The 2010 election is run in large part on the issue of asylum seekers with Tony Abbott, the leader of the coalition, making stopping the boats his policy, or one of his main policies. And uh, the result winds up with a hung parliament. Julia Gillard, who by then is leader of the Labor Party, is able to forge a minority government and is able to, to govern fairly effectively, uh, but the boats continue to come. In the lead up to the 2013 election, Kevin Rudd, who she had deposed in a party room spill, resurrects himself and returns the favor to her, arguing that he can lead labor to re-election at 2013, or at least save the furniture. And the party goes with that. So Rudd is now up against Abbott, who wants to stop the boats. Rudd decides he must do one better. And that is where we get that third pillar of the Australian model, which is if you try to come to Australia, by boat uh, and claim asylum, you will never be allowed to settle here. So we have Rudd um, to thank for that. Of course, Abbott actually wins that election, wins a 17-seat majority, and uh, implements what's called Operation Sovereign Borders, which is essentially a, a beefed-up boat turnback operation that further militarizes uh, the policy and maintains the offshore processing. And boats fairly quickly um, come to a stop. And so this is what drives the, the, the politics of it, is this effort, this idea that Australians don't like the visual image of boats arriving without invitation and provokes this visceral response from voters and this idea that you have to appeal to that and come out even tougher on border control leads us to this Australian model. Now, it also gives us a pretty neat policy experience. And so um, here you can see numbers of boat arrivals. Uh, I've got it by financial year and calendar year. Uh, you can see the Fraser government's small numbers that they were dealing with in the late 70s and early 80s. You can see the numbers beginning to rise here. Uh, under the labor government that institutes mandatory detention, and then you can see the ratcheting up um, around this period of time dealing with the Tampa. And during this time, Pauline Hansen, our populist voice, was there arguing, well, we ought to turn back people at sea. Before she articulated that, uh, or initially when she articulated that, other voices in mainstream politics were saying that's absurd, we can't actually do that. Later that would become part of Australia's policy. She actually proposed several ideas that were initially said that by others that they were beyond the pale, but would become um, adopted. We can see that boats virtually come to an end here, boat arrivals after the Pacific Solution is instituted by Howard in the wake of the MV Tampa affair. And then with the lifting of the Pacific Solution, we see the numbers go up and then come back down. 
And so essentially, um, this begets a conventional wisdom that this suite of policies actually works. And I should add that during that time period, there were several instances where boats carrying uh, refugees, asylum seekers that weren't seaworthy crashed onto the shores and where there's footage of children drowning, people drowning. And this provoked a, a very strong reaction among the Australian people. Now, quite paradoxically, it led them to, to support these policies even more as a way of preventing that. So it's the lesser of two evils. These policies prevent that sort of suffering that they had witnessed um, through video footage. So just to give you an idea of the change in attitude that occurs during this time, I've got two quotes from the Australian newspaper. This one is around the 2001 election. And the Australian newspaper is not a left-leaning rag, as many of you may know. It's a, it's a paper owned by News Corp. And so there was a real reaction against the Pacific solution. But by 2016, the paper had changed its tune, and it reflects a larger shift in public thinking. Um, and I have a, a little more elaborate quote here. The paper opined that dismantling the Pacific solution, Labor's action, was arguably the greatest public policy failure in the nation's history. Uh, it was a hard reality, the paper concluded, that any weakening in the policy would lead to a resumption of the boats. Even some refugee advocates have, have admitted that they think that the policy actually stopped the boats and that there is some good to come from that if it prevents boats from going down um, at sea. So these, that creates a, a willingness to, to believe that the policy is the better of two evils. But there are other dynamics that I think reinforce Australia's commitment to this policy. One is simply the imperative for re-election that governments face. Governments in Australia have a three-year term. That's not a lot of time to get things done. Asylum seekers are not really a pocketbook <clears throat> issue for Australians. When they're confronted with the issue, they'll think about it. But it's not something that governments that seek re-election are going to lead with. It's not something they want to devote their scarce time, resources, and political capital to. And it's not an easy problem to describe. And there aren't a lot of policy solutions just sitting around there, shovel-ready, to use. So it's a tricky issue. There's an incentive for parties in power, parties in government, to try to keep this issue off of the agenda. A second issue is that there's been a lot of leadership instability in Australia since 2007. We go from Rudd to Gillard to Rudd to Abbott to Turnbull, now to Morrison. And this creates risk and uncertainty in, in politics. And so the idea that you would put a bet on confronting this really uh, difficult issue seems to me quite unlikely in the current Australian political context. Now, if we, uh, especially when you've got a policy that seems to be working and that many people, not all, but many people seem to be satisfied with. So there are also reasons why the coalition has no incentive to get rid of this policy. One is that Pauline Hansen and 
minor parties and independents on the right of the conservative liberal party and national party that comprise the coalition, those parties to their right are a threat for draining their votes. And in fact, the number of primary votes that labor and the liberals and nationals get from voters is continually going down, which essentially means that Australian voters are increasingly willing to give their first preference on their ballots to minor parties and independents. And so the coalition has an interest in trying to retain those voters who they might lose to parties on the right, in particular to Pauline Hansen and her party, One Nation. So to show you the importance of this issue to One Nation voters, those voters that the coalition wants to retain, I can cite some evidence from the 2016 Australian Electoral Survey. In that survey, for those who uh, respondents who uh, identified with the One Nation Party, 83% of them regarded immigration as extremely important when deciding how to vote. By contrast, immigration um, was only extremely important for 32% of the national voters, they're part of the coalition, 24% of Liberal Party voters, also part of that conservative coalition, and only 21% of labor voters. In addition, 90% of the people surveyed who identified with the One Nation Party supported vote turnbacks. For the liberal and national parties, that figure was 63%. They're the conservative parties. For labor, it was 55%. So these voters that the coalition is trying to retain clearly have strong views on immigration. It's an important issue for them, and they like the policy um, as it is. A second reason is that the issue is a great wedge issue for labor. <laughs> because labor is a little more divided on the issue of what to do with asylum seekers. And so the coalition is able to use that issue against labor. So within labor, there are some pragmatists who say, look, we just need to win power so we can implement our larger agenda and we'll deal with the asylum seeker issue later, if at all. There are some within labor, a smaller camp to be sure, who want the party to take the moral high ground on the issue and to confront the issue of asylum seeker policy and to change the policy. And periodically when there's an election and candidates make comments, these get aired in the public. And the leaders of the coalition are all over it when that happens. And the thing that they say is, see, you can't trust labor because there are people in labor who wanna go back to the bad years when all of these people arrived, and we, you can trust us. We don't give any ground. You can't trust labor, and you can't trust Bill Shorten, because guess what? In this revolving door of party leadership, maybe he won't be party leader or prime minister. It could be someone else who has more sympathy on this policy area. And so it's a great wedge issue for, for the coalition. For labor, they've got to try to maintain that unity. And for labor, they're also losing votes to their left, to parties like the Green Party. For people, for voters who, for whom this asylum seeker poly, policy is an important issue and that they want to see it changed. So labor is trying to talk out of both sides of its mouth. It wants to retain anyone that it might lose to the right because there are some conservatives within the, the Labor Party historically, 
but it also needs to try to retain these voters that it might lose to the left. And this is becoming an increasingly important dynamic and will be very interesting at the next election as urban electorates um, come under threat, which urban electorates that had been previously safe labor seats begin to be threatened um, by voters who are willing to vote for a party that aligns with their interests, not only on asylum seekers, you could also see climate change and other issues um, being important to them, but asylum seekers are certainly an issue. So it's a wedge issue for the coalition. It helps them retain those voters for whom this is an important issue. And the strangest dynamic that I have seen is that all news is good news for the coalition. Now, I began this talk by naming or by identifying a few people who had actually killed themselves in these detention centers at the cost overruns, at the evidence of some sort of, if not corruption, incompetence in the administration of tendering contracts. And yet, every time Peter Dutton, who is the Minister for Home Affairs, uh, or Scott Morrison when he was Minister for Immigration and Border Control, whenever they have to front up to the media and address these issues, they have a standard script. And that is, well, the reason we have these problems is because of labor's failed policies. The people who are in detention, the people who are suffering, the people who are self-immolating are doing that. They are there because of labor. We will never go back to that, to what the labor, green, labor and greens brought you. They always fold the greens in with labor as if to plant another seed of distrust um, among those. And it's just amazing how they're able to just pivot from no matter how bad the, um, the story is, it is good news for the coalition because they are there to protect, um, protect the country. So that's how it works for the coalition. For labor, it's a little different. I mean, labor feels burned by its experiment that it undertook when it got back into power in 2007. And so I think there is little appetite for reforming these policies aside from at the margins. So if you listen to Bill Shorten talk about how their asylum policies differ from those of the coalition, they will say things about, well, we'll take a more humanitarian approach or we'll be more transparent. And I always think being transparent is the worst thing you could do because being opaque is what allows the government to do a lot of the things that it's doing. It's not getting the sort of scrutiny that it might. So to me, if they're serious about being transparent and they want to stay in power, I would say quit saying that that's not a good idea. Come up with something else. Uh, but they'll tinker around the margins. That's essentially what they promise. At the same time, try to tamp down on those within the party that do want to push for some sort of policy reform. It's hard for me to imagine a first-term labor government doing anything meaningful on asylum seeker policy, especially since boats have not been reaching, um, have not been intercepted by Australian uh, ships and have been able to be turned back effectively. I can't see why they would want to add more people into immigration detention um, at all. So this brings me to the last point then. What about the refugee advocates and what are the prospects for success here? And I think it depends on the policy target that they're choosing. If they're choosing the suite of policies that form this Australian model, then I, I think it's tough, it'll be tough for them because 
there is this belief that the policy works and it prevents a greater evil of, of people um, dying at sea. There's an argument to be made that boat turnbacks are not what created that dramatic drop in the number of boat arrivals. There's an argument that is pretty well documented that it was actually Kevin Rudd's vow that if you come here by boat and seek asylum, you'll never be permitted to settle in Australia, that that is what actually stopped boat arrivals. So there is a little room to perhaps give on boat, on, on, uh, boat turnbacks to convince a government possibly to give that up. I don't think a government would be for turning on that policy um, at all, but there's an argument that that might work. In fact, one of the uh, people making this argument is a former secretary of the Immigration Department. And he was very, one of his articles, uh, blog posts, he's very upset that the Canberra Press Gallery totally ignored this report that showed that it was not boat turnbacks, but rather the vow that you could never settle here that was effective, which for him created room to stop the boat turnbacks. Instead, the Canberra Press Gallery was too consumed with polls and the leadership horse race and, and these sorts of things, which I think makes the point that these sorts of arguments are just too detailed and sophisticated to, to leverage politically if you are one of the governing parties that wants to pursue change. How do you get people to tune in enough to understand these things about this issue, particularly when there are so many other important issues like the Royal Commission into Banks, um, like stagnating wages, so many other higher order issues. I think that the, uh, the bigger problem that, that the advocates face is, I've, I've got a list here of the, the political tactics that human rights advocates can use. They can try to redefine a problem, they can use information to try to get a government to change a policy, engage in symbolic politics, accountability politics, leverage politics. When I teach my human rights class, we talk about all of these tactics um, that advocates can use. The problem that I see is whenever they try to redefine the problem, they always talk about the millions of people who are displaced in the world and who need somewhere to go. And I think that immediately tells people who are worried about that, people coming to Australia, that, well, my goodness, we don't want people coming here. This is an insoluble problem. Uh, maybe we should just leave the status quo policy in place. They want to shift it um, in that way, and I think that, that undermines what they're, what they're trying to do. There's also this idea of, of evidence-based policy advocacy and information. But there have literally been dozens of reports documenting the problems and the human suffering. And none of those gets enough traction to bust through this major party consensus. And so I don't see that working. And in a sense, there's a bit of empathy fatigue, I think, uh, when these stories come to light. I just heard on a podcast yesterday of, well, we need to send a delegation to Nauru to document the problem. And I thought, well, we ought, the problem's been very well documented. It's sort of the next step that can't seem to get traction. The, the symbolic politics, you know, there have been moments where uh, particular children have been singled out as suffering, and even those moments where we might think that you could humanize the people who are suffering here and, and garner some sort of momentum just don't, don't seem to last more than a, a single news cycle, which is about an hour, I guess, to, in today's media landscape. 
accountability politics, holding a government account for its policies, in particular as they relate to international human rights law. Australia has been dragged before the Human Rights uh, Council and Commission and treaty bodies at the UN numerous times and criticized. And some governments like that of John Howard wear that as a badge of honor. You're, you're not going to lose any votes on the right uh, by saying that you don't care what they think in Geneva or in New York about your policies for border defense. So I think in terms of the, the problem definition, the government is in, a, is in the driver's seat in terms of defining the problem as one of border control, border protection. If you read newspaper articles about asylum seekers, the government's representatives are always quoted. Um, advocates are often quoted, if at all, later in the piece. They are setting the framework. And the alternative ways of defining the problem in terms of human suffering or this larger global problem don't seem to make any traction. And in terms of leverage, there doesn't really seem to be any leverage against the Australian government to get it to change its policies. Usually for leverage, you need an international institution like the UN to exercise moral leverage or a benefactor. Well, the US is not going to call Australia out on its policies, particularly under the current US administration. I mean, this is a problem that Western countries around the world are grappling with. And so um, essentially, we have a really difficult setting in which to advocate. For this reason, there's some division among human rights advocates in Australia as to what is the proper approach. Some have said, look, we need to stop targeting the Australian model as a whole and instead try to deal with the people who are remaining on Manus Island and who are remaining in the immigration detention center at Nauru. How can we uh, deal with them? New Zealand has offered to take many of these people. However, the government of Turnbull and now Morrison refused to send, and Abbott refused to send uh, these folks to New Zealand because they worry that these people will simply cross the Tasman through the open migration channel that exists between New Zealand and Australia. And this idea that they will never be allowed um, to settle in Australia is, is seen as you can't even make a concession on that. Um, it used to be in the Howard era, there were a few moderates in the Liberal Party that would sort of push <coughs> Howard a little bit to lighten up the policies implementation. But those moderates are largely gone and those that remain don't speak up very much. The party's largely moved to the right. And also by keeping these people in offshore detention, you sort of isolate them. In the Howard era in the mid-2000s, some of those people who arrived were actually resettled in agricultural areas. Asylum seekers were resettled there and began working and became part of the community. And so you actually had some rural constituencies, members of parliament advocating on their behalf because their communities had gotten to know these people and understood the issues but the offshore processing largely removes that because these people are very far away. They're not in the Australian community. It's interesting if you look back at the Fraser era in the late 70s when they were first confronted with the issue of boat arrivals. There's a, a wonderful book I'd recommend to you if you're interested in this issue area by Claire Higgins. It's a 2017 book and she looks at how the Fraser government responded to that. And what's so compelling about her book is that she finds that all of the issues that are on part of the Australian model today 
were given to the government, the Fraser government, and said, here are policy, they were among the policy options presented to the government. And the Fraser government said, well, we can't do that, or we won't do that, we'll, we'll do something else. And actually saw its, its approach to receiving these people as a badge of honor on the international stage. And I think that speaks volumes about the change in Australian political culture and really what we're seeing around the world um, is that there's this view that societies won't, won't wear that anymore, this hyper-competitiveness between the parties or this tribalism. All of these political dynamics that seem to reinforce um, these more, a commitment to these more draconian policies and a fear of, of the risk of having to explain policy choices um, to people that maybe we should try something else. And I really can't <coughs> fault politicians who seek to stay in power for charting a more conservative course on that front. So to wrap up, if you were looking for an optimistic feel-good talk, this certainly uh, wasn't it to kick off your weekend. But you know, one of the things that I, I, I often think about is, that, and I read a lot in the news about these these particular policy issues is it seems there's so much to work with here to try to get a government to change the policies and yet it, it doesn't seem to change. And so what I've tried to do in this paper is to unpack the dynamics that are reinforcing this status quo and I think are impediments to, to the sort of change that many people in Australia and particularly um, human rights advocates would like to see. And with that, I'll, I'll wrap up so that there's plenty of time for questions. Thank you.